When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Brittany Spanos and Andy Green from Rolling Stone. Hey, guys. Hey, Brian. Hey. How are we doing? We're doing okay. It's been a tough few days. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read something. <laughs> Please. Uh, everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Uh, everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. So that was uh, from a voice that we just lost, uh, Leonard Cohen. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting <laughs> to, to delve into the lyrics of Leonard Cohen right now. What, what, is, what do you think hearing that? I think that he was ahead of his time. He was a prophet of sorts. I mean, he wrote that in the 80s when things weren't nearly as dark as they feel right now. And it feels almost appropriate he died like the day after Trump won. It just, the timing's really freaky almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're here uh, partly today. We're going to uh, celebrate the life and career of uh, Leonard Cohen. And we're going to look back in detail at just... Um, one of the most amazing careers of the 20th century and beyond. Someone who transcended kind of rock and folk. I, it was very interesting. I, I will say that when he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I tried to ask Leonard Cohen one question, yeah. which was, you know, basically there was a thing where we'd be positioned and the the inductees would be walking out and we'd, you know, you'd get a chance to ask them a question or try and I, I attempted to ask Leonard Cohen a question. The dude with him actually physically restrained me. But the question I can say now that I was going to ask Leonard Cohen is, how did he see his relationship to rock and roll? Because here he is yeah. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But yeah, when he walked on stage that night, he said, he said, you know, I think back to the words of the great rock critic John Landau. I've seen the future of rock and roll, and and and, and his name is not Leonard Cohen. <laughs> I don't think he saw himself as a rock star per se even. You know, he was a poet for 10 years before he wrote one song. Um, and we, we have with us a special guest, uh, singer-songwriter Amanda Shires. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are y'all doing? That's about how we're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank what you. a cool week. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. You know, it's funny, uh, uh, um, Amanda's husband, Jason Isbell, tweeted that the biggest Leonard Cohen fan in the world that he knew uh, is Amanda. So I think we're lucky to have her right in this moment. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, Amanda, what I'm curious is, you know, as a songwriter, and, and you have the lucky moment of speaking for every songwriter on the planet right now. But, uh, oh, no, you, that's too much. <laughs> okay, in the entire universe. How about that? Um, <laughs> you know, but for songwriters, um, what is this unique figure of Leonard Cohen, who carved out this unique space for himself. What, what, what does he mean to you as a songwriter and, and, you know, in your opinion, to other songwriters? To me, I think um, he was able to 
he was able to work with such precision. I don't know anybody else that's as pre- precise with yeah. his words, and um, I don't know anybody. I've not listened to anybody that could um, capture dark things so beautifully. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was struck by what uh, Bob Dylan had to say in the recent New Yorker profile. Uh, many of his comments about Cohen weren't about lyrics, but they're about music. His use of counterpoints, a lot of complexities there. I mean, what do you make of Cohen as a as a composer of music and a, and a maker of arrangements? Um, well, as far as that goes, I think that um, he did he did a lot of the best things working sim- simply. You know, he he didn't overcomplicate things with a bunch of chords or crazy arrangements. And I like that he sang with um, backup singers because he was you know, not the greatest fan of his own voice. <laughs> what did you think of his voice? Um, I th- well, I think it's beautiful, but, um, you know, it sort of rocks me in my lady womb. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, he did a, he did a fair amount of that. Apparently. Um, the- I saw him do a concert for, he, he performed for three hours in Memphis at the Orpheum and, um, no opener. It was, you know, three years ago. He was on fire. A lot of people say that, shows on that tour were the among the best shows I've ever seen in their life right Andy I mean that was yeah it, it was sensational I don't know I've watched the Isle of Wight video <laughs> you prefer that's that that's pretty impressive yeah, yeah. I, there's something impressive when somebody can um, he, he was so zen that he could calm you know 600,000 people or however many people there were yeah I mean obviously his spirituality and its kind of relationship with his depression helped shape a lot of his life and music you know his um and and i think that one of the things that people respond to in his music is that sense of spirituality and the spirituality battling with the depression how, how does that play out for for all you guys for for amanda for andy for Brittany? what do you think yeah i think it was sort of interesting that he dabbled in scientology yeah and that was pretty brief and it was really buddhism where he found so much Peace, and that took him away from the public eye for so many years, and you could feel that in the music. He was almost soothing himself with some of these songs. I take from that, you know, all the um, with his admission of doing every drug you could do, <laughs> and you know, going down every spiritual, you know, road. I feel like he was the eternal on the on an eternal quest, uh, like a searcher trying to find what we're all trying to find, and. Um, Man, and I, I think he just embodied it all together. And I'm not trying to like um, be, uh, I don't know, signing up that he's God but, or <laughs> false idols, worshiping false idols, but I think he's as close as it came. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of songwriters feel that way and a lot of people uh, feel that way. Amanda, thanks so much for calling in. Really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. All right. Have have as good a day as possible. Take care. <laughs> Drive safe. I'm going to try, thanks. Okay. Um, so I wanted to, and that, that was Amanda Shires, who's a great singer-songwriter. Check out her music. Um, but I wanted to return to kind of the, the story of Leonard Cohen. He, Andy, tell me the sort of origin story of Leonard Cohen as a, a musician, because it, it is, I think, truly yeah. singular and unique in yeah. the history of popular music. It's truly weird that he was a very widely celebrated poet in Canada for a good decade, all through the beat period of the 50s and everything, but he was making no money. 
because there's not a lot of money in poetry. Well, poetry really. was sort of his Degrassi. Yes. <laughs> God, if he's, if he's Drake. <laughs> yes. yes. yes no, just yeah, kidding. But We're he going, made yeah. much less money than even Drake made doing Degrassi. <laughs> uh, and then by the mid-60s, when he was not making a ton of money and he saw all these singers were doing so well, he's like, he was like, I can do that. And he wrote Suzanne. It was covered by Judy Collins and was beloved. That was 1966 when he was like 33 years old. And he recorded his first album the following year, and it was a masterpiece. It didn't sell very well, but it was hailed as this, this sort of like a new Bob Dylan. He was on Columbia. He was working with John Hammond, signed him and everything. I mean, he was sort of like one of the first new Dylans of that time period. And Bob Johnston, who produced both uh, Dylan and I believe Simon and Garfunkel, also worked with yeah. Leonard Cohen around on his early his record. second, third, and fourth album, he was at the same studio where Dylan made Blonde on Blonde. It was Studio A down in Nashville. It was Bob Johnston producing. And he sort of was a part of that world. He was just like a Bob. He was a new coming of Bob Dylan, but he wasn't nearly as famous or as rich or anything, you know, because those records didn't sell very well. The vast majority of them peaked at like 170 or something. I mean, he wasn't he was playing he was playing bars and clubs throughout the entire 70s, basically. And his third album is of the early albums, the one that I've kind of gravitated to. Tell, Tell me about that. I think that's the one that has famous blue raincoat on it. Yeah. And that's sort of maybe his best song that he ever wrote. That album and all those those early albums, I mean, uh, you know, I was listening to that one on, on uh, Great Headphones last night, Falling Asleep, and it creates a world in a way that an early Dylan album does, but I think in it's, it has a, a lot of specific character, characteristics of its own. Let's hear that song. It's four in the morning, the end of December. I'm writing you now just to see if you're wow. better. Yeah, and I, 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 what's so interesting about this is the fans all see this as his masterpiece, but Leonard saw it as an unfinished work that left him very frustrated. He felt the story was very vague. It's a love triangle between a guy and his brother and a woman they both loved. But to Leonard, it was too vague, and he would never felt that it was a finished song in a weird way. That's interesting, and it's... One of the things that strikes me is, although he was working in that 60s milieu and he had Bob Johnston, he had, it doesn't really, that's what I was starting to get at, it doesn't really sound like of that era he was on his own thing. And it, it sounds, frankly, right at listening to it right now, it sounds sort of like the end of the world, is what it sounds like. <laughs> yes. but, 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 um, but, but what was what influences was he drawing on? Where was he getting this, this sound that he that he had. I think he sort of made up. I mean, this was the peak of James Taylor and Carly Simon and Cat Stevens, that whole Mellow Mafia like <laughs> kind of singer-songwriter thing. And he was a part of it, but his music was very different. It was like poetry set to music. And he was, man, he was very haunting with the way that it was presented. It was a whole unique thing. That was his own island that he was on almost. I think in general, while Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize quite deservedly in my opinion, um, Leonard's lyrics read much better on the page. Yeah, and he toiled over them. Where Dylan could just spew them out quickly, <laughs> Leonard famously would spend months on a song to change a tiny line. It was almost like what Bruce Springsteen did at that same time period, almost maybe a few years later. He would I, I just, think way beyond that, honestly. Yeah, he would yeah. obsess and obsess and refine and refine. And, and, he, was a, and he was a craftsman with, with his lyrics, I mean, and a poet at heart. I mean, something that I definitely have appreciated more in the sort of like 12 hours since this has happened. <laughs> um, but 
listening to his music, especially from the 80s and the I'm Your Man album, like the humor that he tucks in there is so incredible. And it's almost like a reversal of that pop trope of like a really happy song that has really sad lyrics. It's like it's like all this music is so dark, but there's like these weird moments of just great jokes there's and great humor. levity which he introduced yeah. later he's sort mm-hmm. of in my mind he got better and better with each decade almost yeah. right well let's actually yeah. so what came after that early folk period what came next well, what were the 70s like what happened was those early folk albums were beloved but they didn't sell anything <laughs> so like the classic thing that happens now they thought that what he needed was a big producer <laughs> you know here so we, here it comes yeah you know, it would it would have been Timbaland in like 2008, but it was 1977, so they got Phil Spector. <laughs> but it was Phil Spector. It was 15 years past his peak, you know, when he was like aggressively crazy. And they made this album that they wrote together called Death of a Ladies Man. With It was sort of Leonard's lyrics, Phil's music. There were many guns pulled on Leonard while they made it. They had long, drunken nights. Well, the irony of Death of a Ladies Man is it sounds like it literally was almost a death of a ladies man yeah. when Phil Spector pulled a firearm on, on Leonard Yeah, Cohen. he put a gun to his head, the same thing he did to like the Ramones three years later. And the resulting album is the weirdest thing that either Phil Spector's ever done or Leonard Cohen has ever done. And he never played those songs. They were never on can compilations. You, can you name a song from it that we should play? Yeah, you should play Don't Go Home With Your Heart On. With Your Heart On. With Your Heart On. Oh. Heart uh, On. I yes. see. Okay, yes. just, just yeah. We, 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 you know, we can play that. Born in a Man, oh man. Yes, yeah, so... I, <laughs> I kind of dig it, actually. No, I think parts of it are great. It's just, I don't think he liked it. <laughs> Fans didn't like it. It didn't sell anything. And the next one didn't sell anything. So by this point, Columbia is getting very unwilling to keep going with him, really. Yeah, and... and uh... <laughs> was What was Leonard thinking through that? What has he said about that album? It was just one of those drunken long weekends, I think, that you that turned into music. Apparently. It sounds like a little longer than a weekend. Uh, yeah, to... it was a long couple of months of making this crazy album. That there's a real cult for it. I know that I know that I know that Lou Reed loved it. It was one of his favorites. <laughs> God bless him. Yeah. And so then that thing fails even more spectacularly. That one failed and the next one was a back to basics of sorts. That one failed. And now there's new brass at Columbia. There is Walter Yankov. Walter- yeah, 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 that's his name. And he was not willing to keep putting out albums that didn't sell. Yeah. So there's a long wilderness period of like six years past with no album. Uh, but in that time period, he wrote what's become his most beloved song, which is Hallelujah. Oh, I thought it was uh, the real Slim Shady. It was Hollywood. No, yeah, oh, it, was, it, was, okay. it was Hollywood. Yeah, yes. okay. He's not Eminem. And uh, right, sorry, it's, it's been a hard, it's been a long week. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, Hallelujah is a story in itself. It, yeah. It's been a book in itself. Mm-hmm. But how did he come to write it? What what is the story behind the writing of it? I think you know I've seen him tell it a few different ways. I think he just slowly started writing this thing, and he said that it was eventually it was something like sixty pages or something, and he just had to sort of like to in a Bob Dylan style just sort of find the song in this endless like endless glurge of words, and he recorded it. It was a weird album. It was on various positions where he started to use keyboards. but he got this real rinky dink one that had no input jack and yeah, no output jack. they couldn't even mic it. And he recorded a, 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 a whole album that they refused to put out for about two years. <laughs> that included one of the most beloved, iconic, song. beloved songs of but, all time. But yeah. at the time it came out, it was totally ignored. 
Though besides Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Or what did Bob Dylan say? He was the first person that really covered it. It was mm-hmm. totally at the time it came out, it got no attention. I mean, he he filmed a insane video for it, but it just got <laughs> no love at all. You know, this was this was 1985 at at this point when Leonard Cohen was as unpopular as you can get. Yeah, at least in America. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Leonard Cohen's version of Hallelujah, if we can. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Um, We were actually kind of going through the story of Leonard Cohen, and when we left off, we were talking about the song Hallelujah, which Leonard Cohen wrote... Uh, and then everyone ignored him for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the record company refused to put his album out. And then Bob Dylan, uh, you know, who knows a little something about songwriting, was was the first person yeah. to recognize it. Yeah, it was Dylan who first saw the genius of it. He had never covered Cohen in the shows ever, but on two shows in the summer of 1988, he played it live. It was in Montreal once as a tribute to Cohen in, in his old hometown. But that was just only that was just heard by the Dylan nuts. I mean, it, it was not until 1991 when there was a Leonard wow. Cohen tribute album and John Cale of the Velvet Underground. Um, he took the song. He actually asked Cohen to fax him all the words, and <laughs> Leonard faxed him the complete, raw, long version that no one's ever seen wow. of like just the uncut lyrics. And Cale found a whole new melody. He sat down at the piano and came up with it, this new arrangement, which was just stunning. Let's hear the John Cale version. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? This is, for many people, the ver- the arrangement and sort of the song they know. When yeah. we listen to Leonard Cohen version, that's it's, <laughs> it sounds to, to the uneducated ear, it sounds like he's covering his own song. Right. Because this was one of the rearrangements, and this happens in the history of music, when you, you kind of crack the song open and find a new version that's maybe more palatable, right? Right, yeah. yeah. It was a monumental thing, but even this was ignored for a few more years. <laughs> <laughs> they had, my father loved it, but I didn't hear anybody wow. else really talking about this version of it. And what's fascinating is that that was the version that was used in the movie Shrek, so for a lot of kids, that was their first yeah, introduction. that was crazy. I saw music. Shrek in the theater, and this starts, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I'm watching a kid's movie where John Cale, the Velvet Underground, <laughs> is covering Leonard Cohen. Here's my best guess about that. What? I bet they wanted the Jeff Buckley version, and it. Jeff Buckley's estate, which is our pretty tough customers, <laughs> probably wanted way too much money, <laughs> and yeah. so they went to the closest thing. And now, right. so was, I, you know, as a yeah. young person, my introduction to, to Leonard Cohen is very funny. I shouldn't even admit this, but it was th- two things. It was the movie Pump Up the Volume, oh, right? <laughs> which had uh, everybody knows in it, and yeah. the other thing um, was Jeff Buckley doing Hallelujah. Right. So how key was the Jeff Buckley version? It was pretty key. He heard the John Cale version. He played it himself in a very similar arrangement, but his voice is just so majestic and everything. It became this sort of cult 
you know, pre-internet, just sort of viral moment in his career. Do, can we get the uh, Jeff Buckley version up? That'd be great. I mean, th- that's that was the one for a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember when I moved in you, and the holy dove was moving too, and every breath we drew was hallelujah. It's basically like. Poor Jeff was basically an actual angel singing hallelujah, yeah. which is, I think, why people resonated right. with it. Then was Rufus Wainwright took it yeah. and did a very similar version. Then it just went insane. It was covered by everybody at every award show, everywhere. It became, it was it was parodied even by Adam Sandler at one point because <laughs> it had been done so many times at award shows. But it was interesting, the one time that I interviewed Leonard Cohen, I asked him his favorite versions. He said Bon Jovi and Katie Lang. Huh. So wow. it was, I, I was very surprised. Um, <laughs> He was shot through the heart, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bon Jovi was to blame. Yeah, apparently. Uh, okay, I wonder if we can dig up the Bon Jovi version. Is that uh, has that been banned? I'm or, not or sure. Is that, that, that's uh, been. Rec- <laughs> that might just be on YouTube somewhere. I have no the, idea. I've never even heard us, it. I, th- I think that I think that there's you know that that may that may have been uh, wiped out of existence. But was he was he messing with you? No, he had said it before. I think he honestly liked him. Mm-hmm. That's. I mean, I listen. I like Bon Jovi. Yeah. Um, and then what happened was the song started to just pull in a ton of money for him. Yeah. Out of nowhere, because he's the sole writer. All of all of his publishing started to pile up. Um, and then, and then what happened was in the the '80s there was, I think for me some of the '80s albums, what's a little bit of a barrier for me to get yeah. into them is these synth heavy arrangements that he became enamored of. It, right. It, it's. I, I mean, I, they're cool, but they're. To me, there's yeah. something odd about them, and, and for me, I, I have to yeah. get past them yeah. to enjoy those albums. I, totally I know a lot disagree. of people don't, do, I, don't yeah. agree. Yeah. I, love yeah, I love those them. albums. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm Your Man's his best album, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's definitely my yeah. favorite. And I think every song is perfect, and when he toured later, he would do every song on, on, on that album at every concert. It was like the backbone of his catalog in his own mind. Yeah. I do love that album. And, yeah, and yeah. It, it, it bombed in America. It was huge <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme there's here. There's a theme for a whole... <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't get popular in America until like 2008, which is crazy. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll, we'll get, get to, that. to that but so he records I'm Your Man which is brilliant mm-hmm. and was big in Europe was big overseas did nothing here 92 does the future what should, well, what should we hear from, from I'm Your we Man we should play First We Take Manhattan yeah okay that would be great uh, and I do that. they actually sell those in Berlin um, First We Take Manhattan then We Take <laughs> Berlin right. as like wow tourists sort of. it's a song about neo-Nazis yeah. <laughs> I fail to see any relevance in Donald yeah. Trump right now <laughs> cool <laughs> They sentence me to 20 years of boredom For trying to change the system from where And so what happens here is he doesn't sell much, but he gets really cool. The Pixies love him, R.E.M. loves him. He becomes sort of this cool cult figure almost from people that are much younger than he is. An icon. Yeah, yeah he became an icon, and that led to the next album, which was The Future, yeah. which was just as great. That is Anthem on it and Democracy and Whitney for a Miracle, which is mainly known these days for being the soundtrack to Natural Born Killers. <laughs> and he was really cool. Yeah. And then he walked away for the next eight years and didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, and what happened? Why did he walk away? Uh, he got... He was divorced. He was depressed. He broke up with his girlfriend, who was the actress Rebecca De Mornay, and he figured the best solution to his depression was to become a real Buddhist and to move onto a mountain and serve a Zen master. 
and live a very simple lifestyle of waking up at four in the morning and making breakfast for his Zen master, who was then, he, he was in his 90s then, and Islander thought that he would be dead soon, so he wanted to serve him. But the guy lived to be 107, <laughs> <laughs> which is insane. And so for the whole 90s, when he's really cool, he's beloved by the grunge generation, he's name-checked by Kurt Cobain mm-hmm. yeah. in Penny Royalty, you know, uh, but he's gone. He's completely gone. And then by the time he comes back in 2000 with a new album, he's sort of, that cool factor is gone, and he didn't tour or do interviews for it, really, so it just came and went without a trace. Um, and so we're talking about mm-hmm. the uh, life and music of Leonard Cohen. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we will be right back. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. So we've been telling the story of Leonard Cohen and uh, where we left off, he was uh, living in a monastery serving a Zen master who lived to the age of 107. <laughs> and uh, and then I believe after that, it got to the point where he was kind of splitting his time between the Zen monastery and his uh, daughter's house, as yeah. one does. Yeah, he started to sort of get sick of always being at this monastery in the middle of nowhere and was back in L.A. at times. And even in 04, he recorded a new album called Dear Heather that was completely ignored. You know, he was, he was almost, he was like a fringe artist at that point. There was no one was talking about him. And after that, he sort of came back to L.A. and looked into his finances. And according to his account, realized that his former manager, he claims, had stolen almost all of his money. He was down to $150,000. They went to court. <laughs> I'm, he, I'm thinking, I mean, of course, you know, relatively speaking, <laughs> some, some of us wouldn't be so unhappy. But yes, but for, for, a, you know, for someone that was probably larger for, than his monthly you know, yeah, expenses. For a guy yeah. in his mid-70s with children sure, and of grandchildren. Course, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. You know, it and he sued her and he won, but they couldn't really collect. So he was broke. And at age 75, when he really didn't want to, he agreed to his first tour since 1993. And this was what year? This was 08. And I flew to Toronto for like the fifth show of the tour. And I had no clue what to expect. And he plays a three hour concert with this amazing band. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. And the tour started in really small theaters. Yeah, because they didn't know. They didn't know what they had no this thing idea. was capable of. When, they probably were very scared about his yeah, performance in skills. His, yeah. in his whole life, he had never played in bigger than theaters. Had the best hides a few festivals or whatever. Yeah. And just the word of mouth started to spread. And they went to Europe and played arenas, actually. And, and between 2008 and 2013, he did 375 concerts, three and a half hours each. And by the end, he's doing multiple nights at the Garden, all sold out. The tickets are at two fifty a pop. It's he's making money hand over fist, much more than he ever had. And these were kind of life changing concerts. I remember yeah. actually, you know, when in one of my YouTube cover stories, I, I think Bono and the Edge talking about it, but certainly Bono and and bon, for Bono for people like that to see someone 
Yeah. It's a little bit different when you see when these guys see Mick Jagger on stage now. It's yeah. like that seems like that seems more like a magic trick. Like no one can imagine right. themselves sprinting around stage. But when you see Leonard standing still with the fedora pulled down, yeah. and someone in our office said he's the last successful fedora wearer that should be said. <laughs> yeah. um, but but you know he he had the the fedora pulled down and he's not doing a lot physically, but he's doing but, so much. But occasionally he would fall to his knees. Jump yeah. It's the guy older than Wilford Brimley. It's the guy that if Elvis Presley was still alive, the Leonard, he would have been older. He was really old. And at the end of the night, he would skip off the stage like a child after yeah. three and a half hours. It was... It was unbelievable, and the shows just got better and better. And there was also a, a recording renaissance as well. Yeah, he started to record albums. He was working with Patrick Leonard, who was who was who was famous. Madonna, yeah, for yeah. Madonna, and then they'd record also a terrible Jewel album, but we'll leave that. Aside. Yeah, we yeah. can yeah. forget yeah. about that. And they they make these albums at his house in his backyard on Pro Tools on a laptop. These were really simple affairs, but they were great. What should we play from uh, from early in his should, recording comeback? We should play "Going Home." Going home, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful song, and it's it's uh, it's a little bit of a self examination of uh, yeah. of kind of someone knowing their identity and maybe ready to let go of it. Yeah, if we can play he that. name checks himself. He name checks himself. It's uh, <laughs> that it's uh, what is, what does he say about Leonard? I like to to, to to speak with Leonard. He's a sportsman and a shepherd. He's a <laughs> lazy bastard living in a suit. I believe is the line. <laughs> And what is that feel? There's a, there's something Buddhist in it, in its detachment from himself. Like he's a, he, it's right. like this guy. He's ready to transcend. I guess. Right. Yeah. So let's hear that. I'd love to speak with Leonard. He's a sportsman and a shepherd. He's a lazy bastard living in a suit. It's interesting. His voice, you know, became like the bottom keys yeah, of a piano. You know, it's better. incredible. He's the one artist who, as his voice deteriorated and he aged, it got better. When he was young, it was a very undistinct, thin voice. Now mm. he's like this wise rabbi, almost, with this deep voice. And it was a much better singing voice. It was crazy. Yeah. And so... Describe the yeah. last few well, years of his life. What happened was the tour seemed to be like some Bob Dylan never ending tour. They kept yeah. adding legs to it. I mean, they do 375 shows. It's amazing. But then December of 2013, they play New Zealand. They do the last encore of the Drifters, take the last dance for me. And the fans thought it would just keep going. But then they don't add more dates. He puts albums out and he doesn't tour form or do much press. And he slowly just disappears kind of from the public eye. And I spoke to his son, Adam, just like three weeks ago, who yeah. produced his last album. They produced it at his house. In his last year or so of his life, he was living in the second floor of his daughter's house in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And below, she was raising Rufus Wainwright's kid that he fathered. And, huh. life, and Life is funny. Yeah, it's bizarre. And Leonard just got frail. He said, and his son told me he had major spine problems. He had spinal fractures. He couldn't really walk. He was smoking medical marijuana. He was in a lot of pain. And they recorded the last album at the house. They brought in, in some microphones and a laptop and Pro Tools. And he just sang at his dining room table. And his son would take those sound files to the studio and make the album. And it just came out. It came out like 10 days ago or something. What should we play from that? The title track? Yeah, you should play the title track off of it. It's called You Want It Darker, right? You Want It Darker, yeah. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. 
If thine is the glory, then mine must be the So we're sure he made that before his death. Yeah, but it's a lot like Bowie's Black Star. He probably knew he was dying. On this yeah. song, he, he even says, Lord, I'm ready. Yeah. Like, he really knew it was the end. It's, uh, I, I think we'll... And then he he uh, he passed away yesterday. Apparently, yeah. There's been no cause of death. From Adam was telling me he was doing a bit better as of a few weeks ago. He went to a press event maybe two weeks ago. He walked in, sat down for 40 minutes, was telling jokes. Uh, seemed really engaged. He was obviously in pain, but he was his mind was sharp as a tack. So it's unclear what the cause of death was, and they have yet to announce it. I think you know he was lucky enough to have redefined and kind of taken his entire career to a new place in the final years of his life. Yeah. He established a real legacy for himself. He established that his grandkids will have all the money they need forever. And he sort of went out, I think him and Bowie had the the best final acts of any rock stars Mm -hmm. I can think of. It's really incredible. And to do this in his 80s, there's, I can't think of another figure in rock history that made brilliant music in their 80s. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully there'll be more, you know, that's all I can say. Um, So that was the the life and music of Leonard Cohen. And now we're going to turn to, uh, you know, some current events. There was an election this week, as you may have heard. Um, And, you know, I'm trying to look at it through the prism of music, which may be useless, but it's it's all we have. and, and one of the things is, listen, for, for some Americans, uh, this was a moment of triumph. For many Americans, this was a, a moment that is confusing and scary and very hard to swallow. Um, and, you know, for the people, I don't think we're going to do music of triumph right now. I think uh, for people for who are trying to grapple with this, I think one of the things is sometimes people do turn to uh, music in times of uncertainty. Um, Brittany, what what did you turn to? I felt like I was going back to a lot of the albums that were in response or engaged with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yeah. For me, that was really important. And I ended up going back to the Solange album, A Seat at the Table, which became really just tough to listen to in the day after. But yeah. um, that one felt that one resonated the most with me in what, response to everything. Did it just feel too close to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just listening to the lyric "Be weary of the ways of the world" on repeat was a lot, and yeah, yeah, that sounds like a Leonard Cohen lyric, actually. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean, and, and what else? Um, I also went back to a lot of just a lot of early two thousands response to George Bush and you know the Iraq War and things like that. And um, American Idiot was a really important album to me, and when it first came out, and it felt very important still and resonated a lot. Um, yeah, and understandably, uh, for you know, for, for me, um, I you know, I, I listened to um, I, I literally put on the song "Bad Moon Rising" uh, by Credence, um, and I'll tell a story, which is that I was in a diner in Long Island a couple of days before the election, and uh, the song "Bad Moon Rising" came on, and it kind of gave me chills. Um, I, I'm certainly not attributing it. I mean, they were playing a lot of oldies, but uh, and then they played a lot of stuff in a row by Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper. <laughs> Uh, and Richie Valens and I was I was just like is someone like is this the dude in charge of music in this diner really messing with me um, but maybe we can hear Bad Moon Rising can we hear Bad Moon Rising by Credence it's like a rock block I see 
and I'm not joking. I literally put that on. Um, and then, then I, you know, I put on a few other things. I also listened to. Uh, we won't hear the exact version, but I, I, I did. I, I thought about um, the night after Ronald Reagan was elected, and I thought about um, Bruce Springsteen taking the stage um, and playing the song Badlands. He said, "I don't know what you guys think about what happened last night, but I thought it was terrifying." And he, uh, you know, counted it off and they went into Badlands. And I was thinking about a few lines in it. You know, I was thinking about uh, caught in a crossfire that I don't understand because that is really what being part of the tides of history becomes is you are caught in a crossfire that you can't understand in the moment because you only, it will only be understood 20 years from now. Um, and then I thought about another line, which is um, you got to live it every day because uh, one way or another, all of us, that's what we're going to have to do, whatever happens going forward. Um, but and Andy, I'm not going to ask you about what listen, what music you listen to, because apparently yeah. your, your emotions don't function that way. And that's OK. That's OK. <laughs> that's that, that is correct. We, we are all different. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but um, so, you know, and the other thing is, listen, uh, you know, the other the other day we did a show uh, with artists against Trump and uh, they were all very hopeful about the outcome of the election. And I, I did read the, a Kurt Vonnegut quote, basically pointing out that during the Vietnam War, every artist, every writer, every yeah. musician uh, was firmly against the war and it didn't make a damn it bit of difference. Make- any difference if anything i'd say it backfired that 1968 was the height of the of the hippie movement but protest songs and everything and nixon won in a in a pretty big way then 72 came when there's always anti-nixon songs and everybody was against him he destroyed mcgovern and he the talk about the silent majority he would almost say that these hippies marching the streets are anti-american yeah. and it was an effective argument to lots of people in the country so well I yeah and I, I think that's a great point I, I think and Brittany and i were talking the other day i mean i was i didn't get why Donald Trump kept mentioning Jay-Z in the wake of Jay-Z and Beyonce's performance for for Hillary. I thought mm-hmm. he was nuts. Yeah. Now I think he knew that for a lot of the people he who might vote for him, that the word that Jay-Z was not a universally popular musician who's ascended to like basically classic rock them. No, he was a symbol of a lot of the things that in their minds they wanted yeah. to vote against. It was, isn't that what we kind of decided? Yeah, I mean, Jay-Z and Beyonce are the like two of the most famous figures in pop culture and they are also two of the most famous black people in music and pop culture in the world and and richest by the way richest yeah i, I would mm-hmm. be interested to see some net worth comparison <laughs> yeah. true net worth comparison between him but anyway go on but, yeah. yeah for i mean a lot yeah. of people that are against diversity and against you know i you know people who are vaguely white supremacists who don't want to see people of color succeed jay-z and beyonce are the yeah, of that. and if you're Trump, all you have to say is she had a former drug dealer on stage with her mm-hmm. that has romanticized that lifestyle, and it is disgusting. I mean, just too many Americans. That's a potent message. And they mm-hmm. were talking about it on TV afterwards. They weren't. Yeah. And again, I was like, this is nonsense. What are they doing this for? But it actually. You know, for God's sake, she might have lost the margin of votes she needed. <laughs> I mean, so it's just it's it's just a tough thing. It's just I mean, but of course, you know, it, it is that thing. 
it's the central dilemma, and I don't want to get too deep into political strategy because she was attempting to energize a base for her. Right. And this, the, the, it actually, this is interesting. This is why music, yeah. it, it can be interesting to talk about this stuff because it does kind of symbolize the larger picture. You try to energize the base with culture they can relate to, right. but then it alienates the other people you might need to reach out to, and it's just a, it may be an unsolvable yeah, I, puzzle. Yeah. Lots of people that see Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga and Bruce Springsteen telling them how to vote, they resent that. Yeah, and I mean, listen, I, I was I was struck by the sort of heartbreaking image that uh, reportedly that, uh, you know, the night of the election backstage at the Hillary event, Gaga was crying, Katy Perry was crying, Cher was crying, you know, and I thought, God, that's, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I, I know these people, I've interviewed them, and it was painful for me to think about. For a lot of people who voted for Trump, that's the coolest image they could possibly imagine and they, they, they probably hope Lena Dunham that was there too they they they, they relish those tears um, and so you know there's there's a cultural alienation that I, I don't know what can be done about um, but I will say one of the things we've talked about is there is this sense that when you have a very controversial uh, president-elect soon to be president um, you're gonna have protest songs and mm-hmm. an era of politically evolved music which we already have so mm-hmm. what's going to happen from here i mean i think this will be a really fascinating time for how artists react to this and how they engage with it and i think one of the big concerns with trump is the idea of silence and the idea of um sort of these the way he reacts to people on snl making fun of him or um you know, people who in any way threaten his ego yeah. or, you know, his stances on things. And so it's going to be interesting how artists engage with that and how artists um, and what they respond to. Because I think there's a lot of things being threatened right now. Well, you actually may. I mean, listen, the Dixie Chicks perform with Beyonce. And that I what I hadn't thought of is look what happened to the Dixie Chicks mm-hmm. during the Iraq war. And will people be afraid of that happening to yeah. them? My sense is that Bush was more broadly popular than Trump is already. So I yeah. don't think, I think it's it's going to be different. Yeah. But what do you think, Andy? And with the Bush years, a lot of the protest stuff didn't happen until the war started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He started two wars almost simultaneously, and that caused huge blowback in the protest movement. Trump claims to be against these wars and against foreign entanglements, he says. I mean, we just have no clue what he's going to do. It's just, it's such a murky future, it's hard to... Well, that's, I mean, it, you make... Don't forget though that the other, the other thing before the war, before Vietnam, that that yeah. spurred the a lot rights. of the civil rights movement, Absolutely. and so so what we we end and now Black Lives Matter. So so what we maybe and frankly also, um, someone in our office is pointing out that that there is a, a huge environmental movement coming. There already were protests, our protests now under Obama. So mm-hmm. it, we may there's other things that can that can foment a a, a, a protest culture. So we'll yeah. see. And my fear is it just all backfires. <laughs> and that may be. And or you know, or it may not backfire. It may be completely useless. But yes. and I've been thinking about this, but listen, music is useless, but that is the beauty of it. I mean, it it's it's uh there's a Elvis Costello song, All This Useless Beauty. Um and it's like maybe that's what we all need just to make it through the day whether during this time or any time and maybe that's all that music can do whether political or not um and so maybe that's just what we have to look for but certainly we're entering uh, interesting times mm-hmm. um so today we talked a little bit about uh, leonard cohen who who passed away and we went through his entire life story 
Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, I think one of the things we learned was that in his final years, he really got to a point where we're actually going to be looking at him differently than if his comeback hadn't happened. And I, I think it's, we're, we're seeing someone who propelled himself like 10 places higher in the pantheon in his final years. So it, it was cool to learn that. And we talked a little bit about the election. And we're going to be back next week with another show. In the meantime, uh, you should go to rollingstone.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to come back and listen to us next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.